get 100% of the guys you don't remember. That's right, it's Remember That Guy, the podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. I am one of your hosts, James. I am your other co-host, Diaz, and our producer, Craig, was going to be our third guest tonight, but Craig's not ready, so Craig's going to stay behind the scenes. So we were able to bring in a very, very special guest. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's a special guest, Xavier. Once again, coming in to pick up the slack for people who couldn't be here. It's all right, Craig, though. We, we appreciate all the things you do behind the scenes. Well, let's clarify. Cra- Craig, Craig is here. Craig is producing the podcast. Craig is just not ready to speak on the podcast quite yet. So let's give him a little slack. Uh, real quick, do want to give all credit to Yaw Weasel, uh, who is the developer of Craig, the super awesome bot that also serves as the producer of our podcast. Uh, where today we're going to kick off by talking about some uh, lovely athletes that are making memories for us. I'll go ahead and start if you guys don't mind. I got two. First, want to give a shout out to Baltimore Orioles legend Adam Jones, who came in clutch for the Oryx Buffalo, who are currently in the the championship round of the NPB's playoffs. They are now down three games to two, the Occult Swallows, but they were on the verge of being eliminated when in the ninth he came in, delivered the pinch hit home run, delivered the victory, and uh, tonight the the Buffalo will continue to try and come back from that now 3-2 deficit. I'm glad he got the postseason moment that he really never got in Baltimore, even in the, the runs that we had in the mid-2010s. Adam Jones kind of was a non-factor in them, which always really sucked because he was so important to those teams. Uh, and it's it's great to see him right now and hey, what might be one of his last seasons, get further than he ever got before. Yeah, great to uh, see Adam Jones still producing like that. What I love is if you follow him on Twitter, he is very active on Twitter. He did tweet at us. We love that. Thank you, Adam. But the point of this is to say Adam Jones has really integrated himself in the Japanese culture. He has learned some Japanese. He is speaking Japanese with his teammates, with some press there. So not just going over there for a job, but really immersing himself in the culture. We love to see it. Yeah, no, Adam Jones is great. I I got to meet him at the farmer's market once. I shook his hand and did not embarrass myself uh, more than I can say about some other athletes that I got to meet once. So that's great. Uh, Speaking of Baltimore athletes, my other guy is an up-and-coming Baltimore athlete, Tyler Huntley, the backup quarterback for the Ravens, undrafted out of Utah, who made his first start, becoming the, we learned, eighth black quarterback in Ravens history to get a start. That makes them now the second most in NFL history behind the Minnesota Vikings. Tyler Huntley got the win, got the fourth quarter comeback against the Chicago Bears. Lamar loves him. He's from Broward County, just like Lamar and uh, Hollywood Brown. Tyler Huntley was great. He's got such a big, goofy, gap tooth smile, was was grinning from ear to ear after the game. Team loved him. Was totally a dink and dunk offense with some nice runs by him. But Tyler Huntley with the phenomenal performance for an ill Lamar Jackson. Man, that thing that I was worried about last week sure did come true, didn't it? It's almost like you know your own team. The good news is we had Tyler Huntley. He was wonderful. The one thing that I learned about uh, the black quarterback start for the Ravens, Randall Cunningham started two games for the defending Super Bowl champion Ravens uh, when Elvis Gerback was injured, which is crazy to me. I had ne- I could not have told you that. I could have told you you played for the Vikings That's as one of their nine. But yeah, he had two starts for the Ravens along with several. We got Lamar. We got Steve McNair. 
Tony Stewart was one that I uh, hadn't heard of in a while. Uh, now we have Tyler Huntley. Tony Banks was one too, right? Was he not? I'm not sure, but one other thing that we did find out from that was the Giants have had one black quarterback ever. That quarterback has made one start for the Giants ever. You know who that was? I was I so say, surprised when you saw this. I want to say Byron Leftwich for some reason. It was it Geno Byron Smith. Geno Smith. Smith. Oh, my goodness. Um, How many players no, I, have started for both the Jets and the Giants as quarterbacks? Well, one, Geno Smith. <laughs> At least one. Yeah, one, it's one. One of my favorite facts about Jim Thorpe is that he played for both the New York football Giants and the New York baseball Giants. Jim Thorpe also well, has a town named after him in Pennsylvania. And, it's and it has nothing like, to do. It has nothing to do with Jim Thorpe. They just named it after really? him. <laughs> yes. It it's, has, it's a whole thing. Yeah. So uh, absolutely his, nothing his, to do with him. His wife, when he died, was not the mother of several of his adult children at that time. And she kind of shopped his remains around as, hey, who wants to have a town that'll be centered around my husband's remains? And this town in Pennsylvania was like, yeah, cool. We're not doing anything else. Bring him here. And the rest family's like, fuck no, uh, unfortunately. Well, arguably, I'm not here to take sides on the family. The majority of the family's pretty pissed about this, but the wife, when he died, uh, did go ahead and then move his remains there. It's a whole thing. Just love that it's not even like, oh, it's not Thorpestown or Jimville. It's just, nope, Jim Thorpe, Jim Pennsylvania. Thorpe. <laughs> Two words, not even uh, condensed into one. Well, that's that's for me. I got Adam Jones and Tyler Huntley making some uh, absolutely phenomenal memories for me. What about you guys? So not an athlete making memories for me, but a an indelible character within the college basketball world, Dick Vitale, Dickie V, making memories for me. So for the uninitiated, Dick Vitale is the greatest color commentator in basketball, college basketball history, in my opinion. And he has been fighting cancer, um, but he's doing well enough that he was able to get back on the mic for the UCLA Gonzaga game the other night. But this was not a one night only return. He is uh, sticking with it to do to do multiple games. And uh, Dayton upset Kansas earlier today, and Dick Vitale was on the call. I just love for the last ten seconds of it. The play by play guy is trying to call the game, and Dick Vitale is just losing his mind the whole time at everything that he's seen. And it's not necessarily good broadcaster etiquette to walk all over your comrade but in this instance given all the the context dick vitale just absolutely nailed it i just love his joy for the game and to hear him doing what he still loves it just it brings such a smile to me brings joy to my heart so dick vitale keep it up we're all rooting for you and please keep making great memories for us on the mic Oh yeah, Dick Vitale. No, I I didn't realize that he called that uh, Dayton upset earlier today. That's phenomenal. I'm gonna go back and rewatch that later. I was just seeing the game cast of it. Just, but it, hey, it's a year of phenomenal cancer comebacks. Trey Mancini just last week got comeback player of the year from the American League. Yeah, cool. Fuck cancer. Cancer's a piece of shit. Fuck off, cancer. <laughs> Hot take. Dick Vitale making amazing memories for you, Xavier. Anyone? Anyone? Uh. Yeah, you know what? I'm light your give. fire. Two quick shout-outs, uh, one to uh, Ahmad Sauce Gardner and the Cincinnati Bearcats, who uh, just finished off in a 12-0 unbeaten regular season. Uh, as long as they beat Houston next week, they should be in the college football playoff, and nothing any Bama or Oklahoma State or Oklahoma fans tell me will change my mind. Um, also... Quick shout out to Ryan Reeves, uh, the enforcer uh, for the New York Rangers, 
Yeah. In his 701st career NHL game, had his first two-assist game, including an insane dangle against the Islanders, uh, an insane dangle that led to one of the most beautiful goals I've seen in a while, uh, leading the Rangers to uh, fourth overall in the in the NHL for points right now, although still third in their own division because the Metropolitan is insanely stacked. Rangers are good this year. I've I've watched a couple Rangers games. I haven't watched as many Vancouver games as I normally would because, frankly, they're a little bleak, but uh, the Rangers are really good this year. The only teams with more points than them are the Hurricanes, Panthers, and Capitals, all with two more points. The problem is the Hurricanes and Capitals are both in the Metropolitan. They are fourth and third. Still take it. Well... You know what? I'm happy to support the Rangers if they keep going further. They're a team that brings you joy. I also really enjoyed the one picture this week of the Rangers. Seems to be a couple, maybe siblings, but seems to be a couple uh, of female Rangers fans just kind of patting a sad Islanders fan on the head uh, seated next to them during the blowout win uh, that you all had. That was the Ryan Reeves game. That was. Yeah. And I, and I know that photo. That was fantastic. It was good. You got New York's making good memes this week, uh, this year. Sorry, New York. New York's making good memes this season at MSG. I really hope that someone does something with Bing Bong and the Ukrainian bell carol here in the Christmas season. I don't know what the full answer is. Like, I don't know how you build it out more just from that concept. You might have to make that. It's. I'll hit up Side Talk. I'll hit up Side Talk NYC, and we'll we'll see what we can do because they have to like have try and make some copyright on that by now. I'm sure they've tried. Well, that's phenomenal. I'm very glad to hear about Ryan Reeves doing that. I love any time a defender has uh, an outstanding offensive game. But, Xavier, you are also leading us off this week because of your masterful case for Don Zimmer last week. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and tell us about who, you, who you've brought to the table? Yeah, first off, uh, I don't think we mentioned it last week, but the topic uh, for this week is uh, athletes and in individual sports uh, try to break away from you know, NBA, MLB, NFL that we've kind of been doing a little too much. So I went to tennis. Do you remember Andre Agassi? Absolutely, I remember uh, Simpsons guest star Andre Agassi. The main thing I remember about Andre Agassi is how he really just covered all spectrums of the hair department. Early on, he had just the most incredible flow. And then by the time he retired, he did age gracefully and go to the shaved head. But it was jarring to me because I only knew him in late career. And then watching early highlights, it was like, who is this guy with like just the luscious hair? Like, oh, wait, that's like that's the, the same guy. OK, it's like Manu Ginobili flow picks from early in the career. Oh, yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Although even I don't think Manu's flow could rival Andre's personally. No, no, I mean, Andre's rocking like a full you know, Brett Hitman heart, some kind of WWE hair metal band crossover. Fun fact, again. Andre Agassi did wear a hair piece for a while. Wow, so didn't, That's, there was a time. It's, well, it's shattering always, the illusion. The thing, the thing, well, so the thing is, the mullet and the long hair, that was real. But he started balding at like 23. And wore a hairpiece for a while before shaving it all off by 25-ish. There is a fantastic picture that I have posted in our text chat uh, of Discord that you can see. Oh, uh, what a what a what an all-American superstar! But let's go back to the beginning. So, Andre Agassi, uh, born 
April 29, 1970 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, his father was Emmanuel Mike Agassi, who was an Armenian-Iranian Olympic boxer who grew up in Tehran and competed for Iran in the 1948 and 1952 Summer Olympics. Very cool. Fun fact, the family's last name was Agassian until it was changed by Mike's father, who wanted to escape Armenian persecution by the Turks in the Ottoman Empire days. So it changed it from Agassian to Agassi to sound less Armenian. Well, shit. Didn't know that, that an attempted genocide led to Andre Agassi's last name. I, I would have assumed Italian, honestly, is going from the name. One, one, of, one of the uh, star Armenian-Americans is Andre Agassi, along with Serge Tanky and the rest of uh, System of a Down. So Agassi, his father wanted him to be a, a, ten, a tennis star from essentially the time he was born, kind of early Williams sisters slash uh, Todd Marinovich type thing with his dad. Uh, and so by the age of 13, um, Agassi was sent to uh, Nick Boltieri's Tennis Academy in Florida, and he was only supposed to stay there for three months because that was all his family could afford at the time. Altieri watched him play for 30 minutes, gave his family their money back, and said, take your check back, he's here for free. Okay, so we're on, we're on like some, some Mozart prodigy shit with him. A- Agassi drops out of school uh, to pursue a full-time tennis career. He turns professional at the age of 16, and by the age of 18, he had set a then-record of earning one, over $1 million in prize money faster than anyone else after only playing 43 tournaments and did set a then record of 23 consecutive wins by a male teenager, a record that wasn't broken until Rafael Nadal in 2005. And he ended 1998 ranked number three in the world at the age of just 18. Jesus Christ. The ATP and Tennis Magazine named him Most Improved Player of the Year. Interesting thing about Agassi is, despite his early success, he didn't have a lot of chances to compete in Grand Slams because... He just chose not to participate in the Australian Open for the first eight years of his career. Never super explained why. One of the few times he's ever even touched on it, really kind of just talk about how he didn't really take tennis seriously at the time. And the Australian Open was a big tournament, but wasn't a massive tournament until really the 90s. so he kind of just kept skipping the Australian Open to have extra vacation time for himself. Then Wimbledon, he refused to participate in, uh, from 88 to 1990 because of their predominantly white dress code. Agassi, famously very flamboyant, did not want to wear all white. So he skipped the first eight Australian Opens of his career and the first three Wimbledon Opens of his career, which severely impacted his, uh, his Grand Slam total. Even with that, reaches his first two Grand Slam finals in 1990. Uh, he lost the French Open to Andres Gomez and the U.S. Open to new and future rival uh, Pete Sampras. In 1991, Agassi again makes it to the French Open final, but he loses again, this time to Jim Courier. His breakthrough finally came in 1992 when he beat Goran Ivanisevic in Wimbledon after he finally started deciding that he would play in Wimbledon. So, first Grand Slam title comes at the age of 22 uh, in Wimbledon in 1992. Also in 1992, he played on the U.S.'s uh, Davis Cup winning team. During one match of that Davis Cup, he was so hungover, and his eyes were so bloodshot, 
that he wore a pair of Oakleys. The look was so popular, it became the cover of Tennis Magazine, and the founder of Oakley, J uh, Jim Jannard, sent him a Dodge Viper as thanks for the inadvertent publicity. That is the photo that I posted in our group chat of him in his red tracksuit jacket with the long flowing locks in the Oakleys. The other thing I want to say about this that is maybe the most telling of its time is, while they may not be jorts, his shorts do definitely look like they are cut off jorts. And he also, I mean, I, I'm glad that you're saying this because he does look hungover as hell. And he, he did wear jorts many times, so that's not a crazy thing to think of, that they look like jorts. He, he did wear a lot of jorts. How you possibly wear jorts on a tennis court? I do want to clarify for the people who are just listening to us and do not have the benefit of looking at this picture. He has compression shorts on underneath, so it's not like he just has the denim yes, yes. rubbing up on him. Like, so it is still heavy, but it's at least not the direct contact, chafing, nastiness that you could possibly be experiencing. It's it's exclusive, exclusively a fashion statement. It's what Agassi 100%. wanted. He, Agassi was very flamboyant. This is what he wanted. So 1993, down year. Didn't win any any any, uh, any Grand Slams and eventually needed to shut down the season for wrist surgery. Came back, 1994, had a new coach, uh, switched up his play style. Uh, early in his career, he had been more of a baseline player where he would stand right at the right at the edge of the baseline and just try to play from there. He wouldn't get close to the net. He wasn't really much of a big server, uh, but he tried to change to be a little more balanced um, after this comeback. Things started off slowly. Didn't do well in the French or the Wimbledon. He's still not playing the Australian Open at this point. Did become the first unseeded man in the Open era to win the U.S. Open, uh, beating Michael Michael Stich uh, of Germany. So first time an unseeded man had, had won the U.S. Open in the Open era, Andre Agassi, in 1994. 1995 is when his look completely changes. His hair's fallen out. He doesn't want to wear a hairpiece anymore. Shaves it all off. This is where we get uh, the, the new bald Agassi. Well, befitting his new look, he decided to finally participate in the Australian Open. His first appearance down under, he wins the tournament with a four-set win over Pete Sampras in the final. And he reached number one in the world for the first time in April of that year. He just really wanted to get a feel on what it's like on the other side of the world, down under. He really had to study and research to make sure he was ready when he got there. And sure enough, steps right in. Gotta respect it. The thing is, the Australian Open easily becomes his best event whenever he feels like playing there. There are multiple other times he just decides to skip it, but it is easily his best event. It, he, he wins it four times. Four of his eight Grand Slams are the, are the Australian Open, and he competed in it way less than any other tournament because he just skipped it many times at the beginning of his career, and then also in the middle, in the end of his career, he just kept skipping it. Win percentage but, is super high. Yeah, I mean, his, his success rate at the Aussie is, is, is very high. 1996, he doesn't read any, uh, any Grand Slam finals, but he did win the gold medal in men's singles at the Atlanta Olympics, giving him the uh, career Golden Slam, which only other, one other person has the career Golden Slam, which is Rafael Nadal. That's all four Grand Slams plus the Olympic, uh, men's Olympic singles. He's also the only person that has the career Super Slam, which is... All four majors, Olympic gold, and the year-end ATP World Tour finals. I would have assumed someone else would have done at some point, but no, it, it's just Agassi. Yeah. So 1997, Agassi falls off a cliff, both professionally and personally. His wrist injury comes back. Uh, 
Uh, he's he's struggling in 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 games. His marriage to Brooke Shields is falling apart, and he ends up taking crystal meth after a friend urges him to take it. So he takes he starts taking crystal meth. Not and, your friend, Andre. That's not your friend. And he fails a drug test uh, for the ATP. He then sends a letter to the ATP saying that a friend spiked his drink, and the ATP With meth? and the ATP buys it and rescinds uh, his 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 drug suspension. Uh, it just gives him off a warning, which Agassi later admits in his autobiography was a complete lie and that he did knowingly take a lot of crystal meth. Wow. Agassi I'm in, actually I'm in is, disbelief that they, be, that they were sold the lie that someone spiked his drink with crystal meth. So Agassi is like pretty well open now about the fact that he, he hates tennis and he hated competing in tennis and everything about the sport he just completely disliked. We can talk more. I'll talk more about this in a minute or two. I just want to touch on a couple of other things. In November of 1997, he's had this drug suspension imposed and then rescinded. He's had the wrist injury. His marriage is failing. He falls to number 141 in the world by November. And most people just are assuming that his career is over. But Agassi has help and starts a r- rigorous conditioning program. And in 1998, he jumps from ranked 110 in January to number six in the world in December and wins five ATP titles and wins the ATP most improved uh, player for the second time in his career. So that's got to be a pretty tough award to ever win a second time. But I, I'd be very interested in seeing any league, how many people can win most improved twice. I know Chad Bankton won comeback player of the year twice for the NFL after his... Uh, Rotator cuff. Yeah, you can have plenty of injuries, but you start to wonder if you're being talked about most improved second time. Okay, how good are you really? It seems like he's just slacking off in between. Like, oh, I got to suck for a few years so I can get most improved again. We're on so, to you, Andre. You might have fooled so, him with that crystal meth story, <laughs> but you're not getting anything past us. So in 99, uh, Agassi comes back from two sets down to beat Andre Medvedev in the French Open final. This is where he gets his career slam. Only the fifth man at the time to, to ever win it. And the first to have won on all three surfaces of clay, grass, and hard courts because the four men who had got the career slam before him had competed at earlier opens where they were all done um, either on grass or, I believe, hard court. I don't, uh, I don't believe clay was, was in there yet. Also made the Wimbledon final where he lost to Sampras or then beating Todd Martin in the U.S. Open. 2000 starts the year by winning the Aussie Open and becomes the first man to reach four consecutive Grand Slam finals since uh, Rod Laver in 1969. He wins the Aussie again in 2001-2003 and becomes the oldest man to be ranked number one in the ATP rankings uh, at the age of 33, which was since passed by Roger Federer. And then he makes uh, he's able to make one more run to a Grand Slam final uh, at the age of 35, where he lost to Roger Federer in, th- in the 2005 U.S. Open. One of the things that I wanted to circle back to was his rivalry with Pete Sampras. In the 90s to the early 2000s, the Sampras-Agassi rivalry was the biggest in the world for tennis. Sampras was number one in the world for 286 weeks. Agassi was number one for 101 weeks. Uh, they had different styles and personalities. Agassi was the flamboyant superstar. Sampras, the quiet technical professional and Sampras was the more successful of the two 
uh, Sampras won 20 of their 34 uh, head-to-heads, and he won six more Grand Slams. But Sampras struggled on clay, so he never uh, never got a career slam. A career slam. Agassi was the only one of the two to get that, and Sampras never was able to uh, win Olympic gold. So Agassi has that over him too. Agassi, after ten, after he retires, is a big into business. Uh, big big business ventures, buying and selling hotels and casinos, making like venture capitalist groups, investing in in everything. He's He's been big into in, into business, and also big into endorsements. He's been endor- he's been endorsed by pretty much everybody: Nike, Adidas, uh, Dupont, Mountain Dew, Mazda, Kia, American Express, Deutsche Bank, Canon, Schick, Twenty Four Hour Fitness. Laundiness. It feels like one of those one of those graphics where someone's like, "Oh, look how three companies actually control every brand that you're consuming," and it's Pete Sampras controlling every single brand that you're consuming. Not Pete Sampras, fuck Andre Agassi. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and analogous. I talked about his difficult marriage with Brooke she- uh, to Brooke Shields, but he does end up later getting married to Steffi Graf. An extremely talented and successful uh, tennis player in her own right, <laughs> uh, who has more Grand Slam champions than her husband, and they live they live in uh, the Las Vegas area now. That has to be an extremely humbling thing to have your claim to fame be "I'm great at this thing," and then your spouse is like, "Yeah, but you weren't as good as I was." That's got to be incredibly humbling. I love picturing the the competitive nature of sports power couples. Maybe that's, you know, unhealthy parasocial behavior, but it it just fascinates me the mindset of like incredibly competitive people being in love with one another. He has 8 grand slams, which is a ton. And by the time he retired, he was in the top 5. His and wife has, more. has 22. Fuck yes. God 22. Damn. <laughs> but uh I talked about I talked about it earlier in 2009. Agassi releases his autobiography, which was uh, called Open, and Open was all about his difficult parts of his life. He talks about how his father was emotionally abusive and overly demanding. How he literally groomed him from birth to be a to be a tennis a tennis professional. How this led to him hating tennis more than anything, and just wanted his career to be over and the aforementioned drug use finally revealing that he did actually take it and that it wasn't a spike drink any professionals uh responded to this saying that he should have to give back any of his titles that that he won after that which seems a little uh, seemed seemed a little you know over the top Willie Mays did amphetamines. Like, the amphetamines were out there. I don't think they're uh, enough to strip someone of their records. Come on, he did a little meth. That's not good. It's not a good thing. What's a little meth among friends? (laughs) Yeah, and Agassi himself said in an interview with CBS that, you know, it it was a period in his life where he needed help. And he he got clean really quickly, came, came back to tennis. It just was a really, really difficult point for him. But, uh... Very, very open uh, about his struggles in, in this autobiography. He's also, like, a, a, apart from his business ventures, uh, he was a big philanthropist. He was given the Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award in 1985 for his help with disadvantaged youth. He was cited as the most charitable and socially involved player in professional tennis. He may have been the most charitable athlete of his entire generation. 
Yeah, I mean, in fact, he he played one of the greatest uh, games that Andre Agassi ever played was February of 2001 at the Krusty Charity Classic. Uh, it was Andre Agassi and Venus Williams against Pete Sampras and Serena Williams. This is in the season 12 Simpsons episode, Tennis the Menace, uh, which does feature all four of those people playing. We, we unfortunately never learned the final outcome of, of that, but they do all play in the Krusty Charity Classic. So that's, that's uh, you know, just another beautiful chapter in the Andre Agassi-Pete Sampras rivalry. Yeah, so... so... <laughs> Other than The Simpsons, Agassi did have the Andre Agassi College Prep Academy, uh, which was a tuition-free charter school for at-risk children in the Las Vegas area. Had the um, only residential facility for abused and neglected children in Clark County, Nevada. Did the Andre Agassi Center for Education uh, for Child Haven. Assisted in the building of of a facility for medically fragile children uh, that helps kids with infectious diseases or who are developmentally delayed. Founded Athletes for Hope. He he has done a lot of a lot of really awesome charity work for for kids, and I want I wanted to get that in there too. But yeah, I mean Andre Agassi, flamboyant superstar, hated tennis, had some big issues, but you know overall good guy, and had a, a lot of success, although not as much as his wife. As long as he stays humble, I I, <laughs> I, I hope Steffi keeps him humble. I can only imagine what happens if they they have to have a tennis court at their house. I can't imagine them not having a tennis court at, the, at their house. So I have to imagine their kids watching them play in the backyard has to be the most stressful thing ever. But that would just be like any time that there was a household chore that needed to be done and there's a dispute on whose turn it was. Like, hey, Andre, you know, the dishes are really piling up in the sink. Ah, I did them last week. Oh, yeah? All right. One set, six <laughs> games. Let's go right now. Let's figure it out. Let's figure out whose turn it is. The only good thing is that Agassi has said that him and Steffi were not trying to push their kids into becoming tennis players like their parents pushed them, which, good. I'm sure if their kids wanted to be tennis players, they have the, they'd have all of the opportunity in the world to do so. Well, thank you for bringing Andre Agassi to the table. That's a really good Simpsons episode. I'm sorry, it cracks me up every time. They get a concrete tennis court because a funeral home director tells Homer that the exact same amount of concrete is used for a mausoleum for his grandpa as would be used in a tennis court. He's like, oh, I should get a tennis court. And things spiral from there. Season 12, still a good period at Simpsons. Still strong at that point. The shark had not, the shark had not yet been jumped. They probably had jumped like one or two. They've jumped a series of escalating sharks. At the very least, they saw the shark, and they were like, eh, there's a shark. We're going to have to jump it soon. They, Maybe not they yet. continue we're, to still at least jump the shark. Now they're just like, oh, we go around the shark. No, no, no. We've stopped jumping that. We just kind of wave at the shark as we jet ski past it. Shark gives a fin up. I unfortunately do not have anyone related to Simpson cameos, but I do have a pretty good one sport guy. Yes, please, 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 uh, please. If, if, if I may share with you all, I want to talk to you about one of the greatest bowlers of all time. Pete Weber. Uh, yes. Are you all familiar with Pete Weber? Who do you think you are? <laughs> I oh, oh! I promise. I promise we will get to uh, Pete Weber's viral moment. But let us set the stage so that you can appreciate how beautiful Pete Weber's viral moment is. Because Pete Weber, as I said, one of the greatest bowlers of all time. A lot of pressure. Not necessarily pressure to do so. Absolutely the opportunity to do so. Uh, because he was born on... August 21st, 1962, to Father uh, Dick Weber, who is also one of the greatest bowlers of all time. 
Dick Weber at this point was one of the earliest stars of the PBA. The PBA was the professional league of bowling that was somewhat separate from the USBC, which is the governing body of bowling. There's a lot of bureaucracy to bowling, is what I have learned in research to this. But the PBA comes about because at a, at a USBC-sanctioned tournament in 1958, this guy, Eddie Elias, he gets together 60 like bowlers from the, from the circuit, gives them a presentation. He said, this is what I want to do. This is my vision for the PBA. I need all you guys to give me 50 bucks each. And 33 of them give him 50 bucks. And he takes that $1,650 and he uses that to found and incorporate the PBA. And while uh, Lou Campy, uh, an Italian-born guy out of New Jersey, is the first person to win the very first PBA tournament. There are three held in that first year, and the other two are won by Dick Weber. In fact, Dick Weber won, wins 10 of the first 23 available titles for the PBA. So that's all pretty much leading up to 1962 when Pete is born. Dick Weber is already making himself like one of the earliest stars of the PBA. And because of that, you know, he's got his own... There's, Dick Weber Lanes in Florissant, Mississippi, where uh, where little Pete is born. So he, this is a bowling family. Pete and all of his siblings were were bowling as early as two years old. Sometimes that's when Pete says that he first picked it up. He's got him playing with like adult amateurs by fifteen or sixteen. He would have guys that were like his friends from the tour come to the uh, lanes, and he would pit them against his son. This is Dick pitting them against Pete. If Pete beat them, they had to buy him a soda pop. And if they beat Pete, Dick would give him 50 bucks. So not, I would say, the harshness of Andre Agassi's father, but definitely the, the kind of uh, encouragement, uh, maybe a gentler encouragement. I bet two-year-old Pete would have kicked my ass in bowling. I mean, Pete Weber is a <clears throat> savant at bowling early on. And how harsh is it really if you get a soda pop every time you win? I mean, that sounds like that's just lovely. That's yeah, exactly. That's, that's definitely not emotional abuse or. <laughs> well, and I'm imagining like just given the the disparity of the 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 size of the wager, right? So especially at that time, I'm figuring a soda pop's going for like a quarter, maybe. Got to be fifty, 50 bucks. cents or so, yeah. Versus 50 bucks if you beat this little kid. Like, dad was not paying 50 bucks to every guy, not even the majority of the guys that came to challenge his son, I'm sure. No, Dick Weber was very confident. And that's because Pete Weber, in his first, like, adult league game, bowls 300. Um, and this is at the age of 16. He bowls 300 and wins his first PBA regional tour as a non-member of the tour. He's so good as a kid that the next year... Dick Weber pulls strings because you were supposed to be 18. That's the minimum age to join the league. He's like, let my 17-year-old son in. I'm Dick Weber. I'm the biggest fucking star here. Let my 17-year-old son on the tour. And he is let in. And in the 1980 season, you know Pete Weber won Rookie of the Year for the PBA Tour. Doesn't win any titles that year, but he does win Rookie of the Year. Participates in 20 tour events. Gets his first title by 82. At this point, Pete and Dick Weber are now the first ever father-son duo. And he's doing it with a, a very uh, a very distinctive style. The way that he bowls, really high backswing. He's a small guy. He's five foot seven, And so when he does his backswing, he's going above his head with the ball on the backswing every single time. And he has a huge amount of spin. And that means that he can vary his stroke to appeal to the different conditions that you have to do. Because that's another thing that I learned recently about bowling is that there are differences to the lanes and to the courses that you're going to play. And it's all in the wood oil conditions. It's the way that they oil it. See, at one point in time, 
bowling lanes started oiling their lanes simply so that the balls wouldn't dent the wood so badly. It was meant to just keep them moving better. If you go to a normal bowling lane, typically they're oiled in a way where uh, it get, the spin is slowed down on the edges as you get towards the gutters to kind of try and funnel you back in, and the spin moves a little bit more easily in that center to kind of let people who don't have as much control still get good movement. That's easy conditions for us chumps, and that's why, you know, you can have a buddy like our good friend Jake Adams, who bowls quite well, bowls in the 200s, but that's completely different conditions than what these guys are doing, and that's why you often see much lower scores for professional bowlers, despite them being professional bowlers. But because of this, like, just, just ability to approach different lanes, Pete Weber is winning titles left and right. By the time that he is 24 years old, he has reached the 10-title plateau. He's the youngest ever in PBA history to do that. That is still the case. Uh, he wins his first national championship, the PBA national championship, at the age of 26. That has now given him his first triple crown. There's a triple crown in bowling, and it's the U.S. Open, the Tournament of Champions, and the PBA national championship. He gets that Tournament of Champions in 87, completes triple crown. And you would think this kid, you know, he's, this is now the kind of finishing touch on this seven-year arc of the beginning of his career. You would think this would be a moment that he celebrated. Here's the thing. A lot of people fucking hate Pete Weber. At this time, the attitude around bowling is still kind of closer to, like, golf. It's a very kind of chill sport. Crowds were not expected to make a huge amount of noise. There is not supposed to be like a lot of animated stuff from the bowlers. Uh, it's supposed to be very just chill. Pete Weber is a fiery presence. I think that's a diplomatic way to put his temperament when he's on the lanes. The PBA, they did not care for him. Most of the other bowlers did not particularly care for him. In 1987, when he wins this tournament of champions and gets his triple crown, he's not even player of the year that year. Uh, they give it to another guy just because they don't fucking like him. And also, here's a similarity to Andre Agassi. Pete Weber does also do a whole lot of drugs. Pete Weber talks about this four-week period at one point in, like, 84, uh, where he was basically using cocaine to stay up for days on end while also drinking a full fifth of Jack every single evening. Uh, whether or not he was going to sleep, he was still drinking a full fifth How of Jack. How is he alive? Lord only knows. He, for like four weeks, was just having a very fucked up Jack and Coke. Like, not the kind of Jack and Coke that people normally have. Um, <laughs> yeah, it really went off the deep end uh, for a while. While still bowling, like, he's doing this during his period of dominance for a while because he's a mid-20-year-old and he's young, dumb, and full of cum. So he's just doing the best that he can, and the best that he can is pretty fucking good. Problem is... There is eventually a point where that's going to all catch up to you. Uh, for one, he talks about probably spending in that two-year period where he was really into coke from 82 to 84, about $150,000 on drugs. Holy and shit. And I did check the inflation. <clears throat> that's about $400,000 now. He's As like, yo, he's got pretty good. Someone he... with very little to zero drug experience. I have no idea if that's a lot of money or a little amount of money or... It's a lot Doing of money. coke every single day for two years. I, here's what I would say. It's the math checks out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's not. No, that sounds about what it would cost to do coke every day. That um, was my question. I, have no, 80, I had no idea. I had, I had no re frame of reference. 82 to 84. Let's say that's roughly 800 days. 
we're saying that he spent about 500 a day on coke if an individual was railing lines all day i could see how it could cost 500 a day that's insane that's so much money that could be spent on On literally anything else but instead he's doing that and i mean here's the thing he's got the money he's the first uh he's the fastest bowler to ever reach uh million career earnings also so he's doing all this stuff like very young on he's he's has a meteoric rise so to speak but then after his dad first sends him to rehab in 84 because dick weber is still around dick weber is still also on the tour how old is dick weber at this point Dick Weber is, he's, I believe, like 30 or so years old and his son's born. So we're talking probably like 50, 60 or so. Got it. Yeah. And he's, he's on the tour with him. People, people in bowling go for a while. Pete Weber himself will go for a while uh, because thankfully this isn't the end. He does get some help with the Coke problem at 84. He's still falling off the wagon for alcohol several times. And he'll say that he even brags about this one time in the 80s where he bowled in the high 200s in a, in a program regional competition that he wins after being after pounding full strength Long Island iced teas all day. <laughs> I was like, why are you bragging about getting wasted on Long Island iced teas and then bowling well? That's like people do that recreationally. <laughs> um, anyway, Pete Weber in the 90s, this all finally starts to come crashing down. 93. He wins a title, but then goes for his longest winless stretch from 94 to 96. Body can't keep up with it anymore. Uh, He starts to recognize the financial impacts when he's not getting as much winnings. Uh, And he does also credit a lot of the turnaround that's going to happen there at the end of 96 to meeting his third wife, Tracy. The first two marriages had happened during this chaotic period and fallen apart as such. Uh, But he meets the now Tracy Weber in 1997, and she helps him turn his life around he's certainly had some issues still since then uh he has had some more suspensions from the pba for conduct unbecoming of a professional but he, he has definitely been on an upward trajectory on a personal streak so now in 98 the big change for the pba is that eddie elias that guy that founded it 40 years ago and had been in charge this whole time he dies and a couple executives from microsoft in 2000 by the pba and they get Steve Miller, who is a Nike marketing executive, to try and totally change what the PBA is about, totally change the image of the PBA. And a big thing that helps with that is this filmmaker, Christopher Brown, makes a documentary called League of Ordinary Gentlemen. And it's tracking like uh, five bowlers during one of these early PBA seasons in the new ownership. Among them are Pete Weber and also Walter Ray William Jr., who is... Of contemporaries of Pete Williams, Walter Ray Williams Jr. is the other possibly greatest of all time. Like They're both ranked in the top five bowlers all time, absolutely. He is the all-time leader in titles. Uh, He is also the all-time leader in career earnings. So he's hot shit. And the two of them are (laughs) two of the five bowlers that are focused on in this documentary. If you enjoy the IFC show documentary now, one of their episodes uh, is, is based off of this. Tim Robbins plays the character that is loosely based on, on Pete Weber. And uh, it's a great episode and it's a great documentary. And Pete Weber is the like standout star from this because the new guys who own the PBA recognize that Pete Weber, who had actually been suspended one of those times for conduct on becoming a professional when it was purchased by them, they recognize, no, 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 this guy right here. This is the money. This is who you market. This is who you make the face of bowling. 
And they are fine with his antics. They encourage his antics. They encourage him to be this bad boy of bowling. And, uh, you know, they're not encouraging the off-the-lane stuff. They're not saying, like, go out and and be a a hedonistic debauchery dude. But they're all about him, you know, talking some smack to the other bowlers. And it starts to create, like, a change in the culture of bowling and make bowling fun again. All bowling Um, publicity is good publicity. Honestly, all bowling publicity is good publicity. And for a little bit, it's really because of him and Walter Ray Williams Jr. Uh, Walter Ray Williams Jr. gets that initial title that makes him the all-time title holder by beating in 2006 Pete Weber for a title. Uh, That becomes the one that vaults him up, wins him a man of the year that year. And uh, it is a tough time for Pete Weber because it is also when Dick Weber finally passes away. Pete Weber takes some time away from the tour. He does when he comes back. He does come back and win the bowlersparadise.com classic. I do love that name and want to go to bowlersparadise.com <laughs> right now. Well, he wins it, and it's it's beautiful later that year. He does uh, also win his fourth U.S. Open. And this now ties him for most U.S. Opens all time with Don Carter and Dick Weber. So that's big. What's going to be even bigger, though, is what happens five years later. In 2012, uh, our good friend Pete Weber makes it to the finals against Mike Fagan. Mike Fagan is who he is playing in the finals of the 2012 U.S. Open. And it's a good match. It's a really good match. They get to the final frame. This guy in the stands, younger person, 20s or so, has been heckling Pete Weber all game. Which, you know, is the kind of stuff that Pete Weber encourages to a degree. But also when Pete Weber is trailing someone... Pete Weber's not as happy about it. And Pete Weber is trailing coming into this final frame. For anyone who doesn't know this about bowling, in the final frame, if you have cleared all the pins with either a strike or a spare on those first two, there is a final fill frame, which is one last throw. This is how you get your last 10 if you're going for a perfect game to to complete the 300. And anyone gets that throw if you clear your pins on the first two. So he's cleared the pins and has a fill frame trailing by nine pins. It is 214 to 205. The only way that Pete Weber can win this Open, which would be the most U.S. Opens in bowling history, is with a strike. Pete Weber delivers a beautiful strike, and then he delivers this, which is maybe the greatest celebration of all time. So, that's right. Number five. Are you, are you kidding me? I did it. God damn it. I did it. So that's maybe the most viral bowling clip of all time. He claims he was uh, talking to that fan that was shit talking him saying, who do you think you are rooting against me? I'm the man in this tournament. And he very, very well may have meant that. But who do you think you are? I am. It's such a perfect sentence. It's such a, like, I scream that anytime I do something good. It, it has remained with me for the nearly decade now since that has uh, been a fact. It is uh, a great moment. It is an incredible throw. And again, it is his fifth ever U.S. Open title. He has now broken the tie with Don Carter and his father. Uh, he's incredibly deferential in the post-game interviews. Like, look, I'm, I'm not going to call myself one of those. those guys are the greats. Those, because he sounds... Pete Weber sounds exactly like you think Pete Weber sounds like. I do highly recommend listening to some of his interviews. 
And the good news is that after 2012, Pete Weber's not done yet. I mean, he wins that fifth U.S. Open. It is his final U.S. Open. But he does win a couple other major tournaments, uh, including his very last Tournament of Champions in 2017, which completes a second Triple Crown for him. And he becomes the only ever U.S. bowler to have two different Triple Crowns, uh, having you know one in two different sequences, one of each of those three major competitions. And that is, you know, 2017, we're talking... 37 years after he started on the tour, almost 30 years after his first tournament of champions, just an incredible run to be in any sport that long. At that time, he is past 50. He is the oldest ever person to win the tournament of champions at 50. And he is playing in both the national tour and the over 50 tour for a couple more years until 2021, right before he plays the round of 16 of the PBA Scorpion Championship. And by the way, going back to oil conditions, the wood oil of lanes, they always give them very stupid names. They give them names like Scorpion, Cheetah, Viper, and Chameleon. And that's then what they're calling a lot of these different competitions that you know, like what the different oil conditions are. There are some really fun minutiae in professional bowling that I look forward to diving into in, in Wikipedia binges in the near future. At this championship, prior to the round of 16, on March 17th, Pete Weber does announce that that competition is going to be his final competition. He's gotten to the age where he's still got the spin, but there's a point where you need a certain amount of like muscle mass to be able to hit and strike those pins as strong as you need to. And that's what he says in his interviews leading up to his, I just don't have the strength to hit it as hard as some of these other guys are hitting it now on this tour. So he, he says he's going to continue to play in the over 50s, but that he is done. And going into that final frame, he trails by enough that he knows this is going to be his final frame on the PBA National Tour. Finishes his career with 85 perfect games, 37 titles, good for fourth all-time, more than 4 million career earnings. He and Walter Ray Williams Jr. are the only two to crack the 4 million mark, and he made it to 67 final matches in his career, 37 and 30 record in him. A couple things that folks were saying as, as he was retiring. Mike Fagan, the guy that he beat in 2012 for the championship, he has been the most noteworthy person in the sport for 40 years. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, but he made bowling fun again. Another longtime PBA champion, Norm Duke. Pete can reach out through a television, grab you by the neck, turn your head toward him and say, oh, no, 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 you might want to watch this. And people do before he throws this final frame. He takes a moment to stop because... It is clear he is going to lose this match, and there are onlookers uh, who want to hear from him. So he stops and says, It's been an honor and a privilege to be part of the Professional Bowlers Association for 41 years. I appreciate all the fans I have who hate me or love me. You watched. That's all you could do. And then throws a strike on the first throw, hits six on the next, picks up the spare, walks off, and drops an F-bomb on a live television post-game interview. I love Pete Weber. I love it. I love Pete Weber. I also went to bowlersparadise.com. They have a Black Friday sale. If any of you want the Elite Star Red Pearl Bowling Ball, it is now on sale for $49.95 instead of the normal $89.95. We can yeah, definitely become steal. bowlers at this point. We, we have, a, we have a, about a, another 30 years left where we, for our bowling prime. We could do this. Well, the thing is, I'm, I'm in duck pin territory down here, man. Someday I'm going to be able to talk about John McGraw here on the pod, and we'll get all into the history of duck pin bowling here in Baltimore. I'm all about it. 
I'm all about Pete Weber because one of the main things that I personally believe about sports is that the heroes and the villains are both equally important. If everybody was just a picture-perfect, clean, nice guy, then sports would be boring. We need the characters. We need the villains, the guys that you love to hate. And Pete Weber really threw the entire sport on his back with his behavior. So... I just I really idolize a person that can lean into the villainry and and turn it even into a positive. And I think that's that's really the story of Pete Weber. Absolutely. And I love that that both he and his father in these two separate eras of the PBA are like such crucial people just for the existence of professional bowling at this point. Like that family has put such a mark on that sport. It's incredible. I mean, and also just, I mean, this has been a great couple of podcasts in a row of just great dick names. Dick Weber. We had Dick Versace yeah. last week. Dick Offenheimer helping with Buddy Ryan. So Dick Vital. Dick Vital earlier in this podcast. Just big. We're, we're very pro Dick on this podcast. It's Dick's we, all the way down. We love, we love, <laughs> our, we love our great Dicks. <laughs> but to transition into my guy. Kind of goes off the theme of villains. I, we, I think Andre Agassi had a bad boy side. Pete Weber certainly had a bad boy side. And my guy is a boxer. And boxers of all sports, I think, lend themselves towards huge personalities, people that like to flame the tensions, as it were. And there is perhaps no more flamboyant boxer that I can remember watching in my lifetime. And Prince Nassim Hamed. Yep. Uh, once you said flamboyant, I knew who you were gonna who you were gonna talk about. So Xavier Xavier knows Prince Nassim Hamed. James, have you ever heard of Prince Nassim Hamed? I know I've heard you say this name before. I'm sure you've told me about this guy, but I admit it's totally escaping me right now, and I'm so ready to learn. So Prince Nassim Hamed is not actually a prince. His name is just Nassim. <laughs> Hamed. But boxers like to lean into the pageantry and really build themselves up so he dubbed himself a prince so prince it's, nasim hamed i'm just gonna say it's the same as like you know dressing the the for the job you want if you want to be seen as a prince you gotta start by giving yourself the title prince of course and nobody's gonna call you a prince for you so you need to claim it yourself so prince nasim hamed family origin from yemen but born and raised in great britain born february 12th 1974 AKA Nas. He was a boxer in the lighter weight division. So started as a bantamweight, eventually worked his way up to super bantamweight and then featherweight. And Prince Nassim Hamed is credited with ushering in two different types of boxers into the mainstream to get the credit that they deserve. First would be British boxers. So British boxers were kind of a self-contained thing. Boxing is a mm -hmm. huge sport in England. But it was very rare that a boxer could come over across seas and maintain that same level of popularity. Prince Nassim Hamed is one of the first to do this, along with Lennox Lewis. So they're kind of both coming up at the same time. It, they're both on opposite ends of the weight spectrum. Of course, Lennox Lewis, a great heavyweight champion. Prince Nassim Hamed at the lower weight classes. But if you are a fan of Tyson Fury, if you're a fan of Anthony Joshua, if you're a fan of Ricky Hatton, any British boxer... I think you need to credit Prince Nassim Hamed for opening that door to allow them to come over. Well, and now out of curiosity, if you're saying that they weren't able to find the same popularity, were they struggling to find the same success? Was it the kind of like, oh, you're coming from overseas into this new league and you just can't keep up with the competition? Or was it just people weren't into the, you know, the marketability of these guys? 
I would say a little column A, a little column B. So there certainly there were previous British fighters who did fight for world titles and then did win those fights. But it was very rare that you could have a British boxer headlining a card that is going to sell pay-per-views in the United States. Prince Nassim Hamed is kind of the guy that's able to change this narrative. But then not just for the British boxers, but also for the fighters at the lower weight classes. Obviously, boxing is the, 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 the sweet science, is what it's always called. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what most people are watching for is those brutal knockouts. Not as common when it's the smaller guys. The heavyweights, of course, when they throw, they land, people are going down. Not so much at the lower weight classes. But Prince Nassim Hamed is one of the first people to change this narrative. So he retired with a 36-1 and record and had 31 knockouts in those 36 victories. Damn. So for any boxer, this is very good. For a fighter who his heaviest weight class that he ever fought in was 132 pounds, to have that many knockouts is was at the time unparalleled. We've had some more serious power punchers since then. Manny Pacquiao, for example. Future Inoue, President Manny Pacquiao. Future Philippine President Manny Pacquiao. Uh, Naoya Inoue, great Japanese boxer right now, uh, also has terrifying power. But Prince Nassim Hamed is one of the first guys at a lower weight class to sort of popularize that. And as you may infer from his name, Nassim Hamed, uh, he was born and raised and continues to be a devout Muslim. This is where the Prince moniker somewhat came from. So his entire career, with the exception of his very last fight, is in a pre-9-11 world, not to get super geopolitics on everything. But nonetheless, there is still the stereotype of Muslims as people in Western society may not necessarily trust them as much, blah, blah, blah. Prince Nassim Hamed just leans fully into this. Says, if you don't like me, I don't need you to like me. I'm going to be the guy that you fucking hate, and I'm going to go out there, and I'm still going to knock people out. So that's more how he's marketed in the United States. But in England, he was, to all members of the working class, a hero. Because he did come from a lower class family and work his way up. But, you know, enough of the narrative. You know, let's get into the actual in-the-ring stuff of Prince Nassim Hamed. Because there's enough fascinating stuff here. His entire career, up until his 29th professional fight, he's 28-0. All of them knockouts with the exception of... Two. So his sixth fight went to points, did not go to a decision because at lower levels of boxing, a referee will actually just say afterwards who won. So his sixth fight goes to points. The ref correctly deems him the victor. Uh, he also had a unanimous decision victory in his 12th fight over Vincenzo Belcastro, which gave him his first title. That was the European bantamweight title. So not a world champion yet, but he does have to go the distance to earn his first title. Continues on with a very impressive knockout stretch. Uh, the only person that he did not knock out during the fight was a fighter that retired on the stool, Manuel Medina, in his 23rd fight um, after the 11th round going into the 12th. Didn't have a chance of winning, was getting beat up pretty bad out there. Figured he'll cut his losses. That was his 23rd fight. He runs off five more consecutive victories, collects the IBF, WBO, featherweight titles along the way. I must potentially acknowledge some ignorance here. Retired on the stool means he retired from that match, not like he right. gave up bowling on that stool, right? Or boxing, boxing. on that stool. <laughs> right. no, no. no, it's it's uh, the same thing as if, you know, when, when you say a tennis player retired during the match. It's the same okay, concept. okay. Cool. So, yeah, I, I, I cannot confirm 
if uh, Manuel Medina did go on to fight further fights, but I do know that in that instance, he said, no mas. If you're not initiated as a boxing fan, Roberto Duran was getting his ass kicked by Sugar Ray Leonard and infamously said, no mas, in the middle of the fight, said, no mas, which, if you don't speak Spanish, means no more. Yeah, little language lesson for you. But So 28-0, he now is ready to come across the pond. He's fought all of his fights in the greater United Kingdom, so England and Scotland, Ireland. He's fought there, but now it's time to come across the seas and to fight Kevin Kelly uh, in his debut at Madison Square Garden. And this is a back-and-forth fight. So first of all, what's important for you to know about Prince Nassim Hamed is he is the ultimate showman in the ring, the king of putting the hands behind the back. I'm not going to even have my hands up. I'm going to dodge you. I'm going to have my hands behind the back when I throw the punch, throwing punches from all kinds of angles, just the master of ring showmanship and making the opponent feel wholly inadequate and unable to do anything in the ring. Well, Kevin Kelly, in his American debut, gave him a rude wake-up call. In the first three rounds, Prince Nassim Hamed is knocked down three times. Never seriously hurt, but caught off balance, feels the power, gets knocked down. And this is the first fight in his professional career in which Nassim Hamed says, okay, I'm going to fight you like a real boxer. So in the fourth round, he switches his style. He becomes a normal boxer. Very swiftly, devastatingly so, knocks out Kevin Kelly and wins his American debut at Madison Square Garden. His next fight, he goes back to England, fights Wilfredo Vasquez, who was a great champion in his own right in his day. But he does get knocked out by Nassim Hamed in the seventh round. Runs off a few more victories until his 35th fight, He's now back in the United States. He had had a couple more fights in the States in that time. He had one in Atlantic City. He had one at Joe Louis Arena in Detroit. And finally, he goes to fight Augie Sanchez. Now, Augie Sanchez is a name that I personally didn't know until I started doing my research. And I wouldn't expect either of you to know. But what's significant about Augie Sanchez is that in his amateur career, he was the last fighter to defeat Floyd Mayweather. How did I not know that? In an amateur bout, Augie Sanchez beat Floyd Mayweather. It is the last time that Floyd Mayweather lost a boxing contest. Dude, that's um, such a good piece of trivia. I wonder if so, Floyd hates him and just pretends he doesn't exist so he can pretend that he's never lost ever. The thing I will say, too, is it is extremely rare for any boxer to get through the amateur ranks undefeated just because amateur boxing is so different than professional boxing. It's You fight so many more times on quicker turnarounds, X, Y, and Z. It's very rare for a fighter to get through their amateur career undefeated. But nonetheless, Augie Sanchez is the last man that can say that they beat Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match. So this is pretty formidable competition, you would think, except it isn't. Augie Sanchez gets dominated by Nassim Hamed and gets knocked out in the fourth round. So to date in his career, 35 fights, 35 victories, 31 of them coming by way of knockout. This sets the scene for one of the greatest super fights at the lower weight classes that there's ever been in terms of hype, promotion. They, they headlined this card. This is one of the first times that a pay-per-view is headlined by fighters at such a low weight class. And it is Nassim Hamed against Marco Antonio Barrera. Okay, and I that one. I know Marco a Antonio Barrera. There we go. So Marco Antonio Barrera is one of... When I think of the lower weight classes and I think of just Mexican warriors, Marco Antonio Barrera and Eric Morales are of the same cloth to me. By the way, I'll, I'll give a plug. If you are a Spanish speaker and you want to have a, listen to a great boxing podcast, 
Rallis and Barrera now host a podcast together called Un Round Mas. Early on, they just recount their earlier fights against each other, but they end up getting into deeper boxing issues. And it's incredible to see how great of chemistry they have and the jokes that they're able to have back and forth because Barrera and Morales are two guys that absolutely fucking hated each other when they were active. Their trilogy is one of the greatest boxing trilogies of all time. I would implore anybody, whether you are a boxing fan or if you're just curious about boxing but you don't know where to start, the Barrera-Morales trilogy is a great place to start. Just two warriors throwing punches at each other. But I digress. The main point of, of saying that is to show that while Nassim Hamed is an extremely flamboyant showman in the ring, Mexican fighters have a long heritage of just being absolutely no nonsense in the ring whatsoever. They are here for one thing, and it is to punch you in the face, and they don't care if they get punched in the face as long as they punch you in the face too. That's kind of the Mexican ethos. You so, just got to get hit harder. Exactly. <laughs> it's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. So the same kind of concepts here. And in the lead up to this fight, it's a tale of two fighters. So first of all, in his previous victory over Augie Sanchez, Asim Hamed, as I mentioned, devastating knockout power for a fighter his size. But as part of that, as you can imagine, a person that size, their hands are not built to throw punches as hard as Nassim Hamed is throwing his punches. He always dealt with hand issues. He actually broke at least one of his hands, if not both of them, in that Augie Sanchez fight. So he had to take six months off from training to recover, and he ended up putting on 35 pounds while he was doing so. To get back down to his weight class, he now has to lose those 35 pounds. As you can imagine, this is a fairly draining process, even for somebody who is taking their training seriously. However, Nassim Hamed at this point is an international superstar in the boxing world, starting to believe, you know, the old adage, his shit doesn't stink. He's starting to think that he's hot shit. So he's not taking his training as serious. And meanwhile, Marco Antonio Barrera is just on a warpath. So the, the, the late, great Emmanuel Stewart had visited both camps as the commentator for HBO. So he, you know, of course, as part of his research, checks in on both camps. He says after the fact, after visiting both, he knew right away the way that this fight was going to go. And what, what adds to the agita of Marco Antonio Barrera is not just that Nassim Hamed is such a showman, but on the night of the fight, the main event is delayed by an hour for two reasons. The, the primary reason is that Nassim Hamed can't get the right hand wraps for his hands wants to make sure he gets the right hand wraps. But a greater reason why he was not ready to go out is because his grand entrance, they did not necessarily have all the elements ready for it yet. So <laughs> he needed to make sure that everything was uh, accounted for and ready to go. So, of course, Marco Antonio Barrera came out first and just the standard rain walk, you know, steely eyes, ready to go. Asim Ahmed has his whole elaborate rain walk, playing it up to the crowd. And a couple times during the broadcast... They cut to Marco Antonio Barrera and just the juxtaposition of Nassim Hamed smiling to the crowd, you know, really yakking it up. And Marco Antonio Barrera is just staring daggers the whole time. You can kind of see where I'm going with this. The fight does go the distance, I will say, but it is roundly dominated by Marco Antonio Barrera. Hamed tries some of his creative tactics, you know, his showmanship. Let me try to throw this guy off his game. Um, at one point, he even tackles Barrera to the ground, which is, of course, very illegal in boxing. And while they're on the ground, Barrera kind of throws a quick left jab to him to, like, say, hey, fuck off. But largely, Barrera is unrattled. We enter the 12th round. And, of course, in boxing, you never know how the cards are looking. But it is a strong suspicion of Barrera that he has this fight in the bag. So he takes the opportunity to put 
Hamed in a full Nelson, which is, again, very illegal in boxing, rams his head into the turnbuckle. So he puts him in the Nelson, Jesus. walks over to the corner, and rams his head into the turnbuckle. That's some they WWE put- shit! What the fuck?! very quickly puts his hands back like oh whoops did i just do that thing that i clearly did oh i didn't mean to ref takes a point away which is fully deserved ends up not mattering as the final scorecards come in 115 to 112 115 to 112 116 to 111 all to the winner by unanimous decision marco antonio barrera and you know as i had mentioned these hand problems motivation was always an issue for him once he got to the height of superstardom so he actually only fights one more fight after this. He fights against Manuel Calvo from Spain. They fight back in London, so he does get his final fight back in London after this previous fight was at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. It is roundly viewed as while he did win, it was a very unimpressive victory. He did not look to be in his top form, and it was not a knockout, which is perhaps most notable for him. So once unanimous decision for bit of a letdown, isn't it? Bit, bit of a letdown. And for years after this, there's speculation as to, is he actually retired? Is he ever going to fight again? He hints at a few fights. He hints at mega fights. hints at a mega fight with Manny Pacquiao at one point. Ultimately, it just never happens. So he does retire with a professional record of 35-1-0. What a lot of critics say about Hamed is that the first time that he was challenged, he kind of walks away from the sport once he meets somebody that's bigger and badder than him. That is, I mean, that's kind of, that's what's so interesting about boxing to me. You know, these guys are quite literally warriors going into the ring. You need to believe every time that you go into that ring that you're the baddest person on the planet or you're not going to win. And once you have that illusion shattered for the first time, how do you bounce back? I certainly, as a person that has never fought in a boxing ring, cannot fault anybody who, after getting their ass kicked, said, you know what, I like kicking ass, but I don't like getting my ass kicked. I think I'm good. That ends up being it for Nassim Ahmed, but... His overall greater cultural impact, as I mentioned, really opening the door for those lighter weight fighters to be able to headline cards just the same, opening the door for British boxing to become bigger in the United States, because a big issue, too, with it, it's going off in England. You know, prime time over there is, say, 10 o'clock. It's going to be about a 4 p.m. fight over here. So you're competing with some great college football and all that, so... It was a time where if there was a great fight in England, it wouldn't even be available in the United States. You'd have to wait and watch it on tape delay later. But he's opened the door for those fights to now be shown live in the United States. Really a, just a great ambassador for the sport from England to the United oh, yeah. States. And again, like even if, if you don't want to watch a full fight, you can even just pull up uh, like a highlights of Nassim Hamed and get the appreciation of what he was doing. Just the... I, an all-time great showman, I think, in any sport, but especially when you're a great showman in a combat sport like boxing or like MMA, where you can show off all you want and uh, you might get your lights knocked out if you're not 100% sure in what you're doing. But he always was, and an incredibly entertaining fighter to watch. Always did a, a front flip, so you know, when people step into the ring, they'd like duck under, maybe they put a foot over. He did a front flip somersault over the top buckle every time to get in the ring. And you just love to see it. So Prince Nassim Hamed, one of the all-time great showmans in the boxing ring. Thank you. What a guy. If not for Prince Nassim Hamed, we might not have had uh, my favorite ever boxing moments. He opened the door for Tyson Fury coming out on a palanquin uh, held by Amazon Warriors while singing the song Crazy with a full cape and crown taking about six minutes to get 
30 feet from the <laughs> from the stadium entrance to to the ring and then Dante Wilder trying to match him with a 50 pound LED Black Panther-ish suit on which he then blames for his loss. Dude, I can't understand boxers not wanting to make a big fucking deal out of their entrance. Like the fact that the you're you're talking about these people who, like don't put in the glitz and glamour to coming in? No, man. Fucking play up your moment. God damn. Well, and Hamed is one of the first to really popularize that. And I mean, if you absolutely in interviews, in interviews Tyson Fury will talk about it as well, how much of an inspiration uh, Nassim Hamed was to him growing up. So, I mean, yeah, like I said, for for such a small fighter, for a British fighter, truly groundbreaking. And not to say that, like, obviously there's always been smack talk in combat sports, but I feel like Nassim Hamed really popularized it and brought it to the mainstream in a way that it wasn't done before. Definitely. All right. Well, as we get into our discussion for induction, I want to thank you, Xavier. I think this is a really... I think this is a good choice for the mentality of solo sports. It, it is, it, it's very different from the mentality of team sports operating this way without teammates. And we have someone like Andre Agassi, who's you, you know made to fit into this mold that has been set up by, by an overbearing parent. And it's like, how do you cope with this sport that you are incredible at, that you hate? You've got someone like Pete Weber, who thrives in growing up in this shadow and and making a name for himself but also being this like very in some ways self-destructive and also just kind of aggressive and, and outwardly destructive person and then you've got this this guy prince nassim men who sounds fucking awesome um i'm absolutely going to be looking into him but just like you're saying what happens the first time someone gets challenged and what happens the first time someone gets like truly knocked down and in all of these I just think it's it's been very cool to kind of dive into that mentality of operating in a sport alone when so often, you're right, we absolutely think of team sports and we talk about, oh, a pitcher is an island unto themselves or oh, a quarterback is, so, you know, goalies all alone, kickers lonely. Yeah, those are lonely positions. You still got a teammate when you come back to the line. Uh, and so this is, I, I just want to thank you, Xavier. I think this was a phenomenal conversation. I enjoyed it. And, and I'm going to say, for the impact on the culture, my initial leaning is, is towards our, our prince, our prince himself, Prince Charming, Prince Nassim Ahmed, because I did not realize that people weren't fucking like going to the nines with their intros before that. That's the, the fact that he's responsible for that cultural shift is huge for me, personally. And I, I don't want to say that nobody did it before him, but he was the one that really, like, there may have been a line before him, and now there is no line. There is, the, the line is gone. But at the same time, I am incredibly deferential to Pete Weber just because, to me, that's, like, the single greatest single line of smack talk slash self-promotion slash triumph, however you want to say it. Who do you think I was... you are, I am. Like, you, and you, because... You can say it in any sport, too. Like, you make a great basketball shot. You, as a linebacker, take out a running back on a flat route, look down at him. It's, it's so applicable. I'll, I'll challenge you to this, because I was trying to think about this coming into it. Like, what is another triumphant line that truly jumps out to you? And the only other one that I think really, to me, is as, as kind of permanent is, the Kevin Garnett, anything is possible, is just an unbridled expression of, 
it, maybe it's a different, you know, there are different shades of color, but it's the same kind of triumphant exuberance, like, holy fuck, just having won this after all of that, compared to Pete Weber's, like, who, you can't stop me. There was one time Pete Weber reportedly was bowling with someone, and it was a guy who was, like, trying to get his first title, and he just starts walking around towards the end of this, going, this guy's not getting his first against me. No, it's me. It's, no, he's not walking, and he does, does win that match and shut that guy down. He, he backs up his smack talk a lot. That, that reminds me of one of my favorite Larry Bird stories is at the inaugural NBA three-point shootout. He walked in to the locker room in his full warm-up jacket and everything and just said, so which one of you boys is getting second place tonight? Everybody else shot the three-point shootout like in their uniform. Larry did not take off the warm-ups and still won the three-point shootout like in that same vein. All right, so I mean, it seems like we're both trying to give it to, to, to the other person's guy. So I'm curious, Xavier, where are you leaning on this? As much as I love boxing, and I especially love the showmanship of it, ever since I guessed that James was going to talk about Pete Weber, I just wanted to hear James talk about Pete Weber. Even knowing the most famous thing, hearing the rest of Pete Weber's story did not let me down. Specifically, the special Jack and Coke uh, regiment that uh, Pete Weber did for about three years. <laughs> There's something about bowling that just feels like a sport that anyone could most likely do, but that if you're good at it and you're a jackass about it, it feels so unnecessary to, to, to be that way. The fact that Weber did it anyway, he just seems like, it feels like you could see someone like Pete Weber at a, your local bowling alley if you went there on a Saturday morning it have the the gloves with the, with their monogrammed ball uh, going out there, just acting like a dick, playing by themselves, and that's just the most guy like thing I can think of. Bowling as a sport has has intensely high guy energy. I was gonna say, like, dare I say, the most guy sport there is is bowling. I think Does that makes the Big Lebowski the most guy. guy movie. Is it? Yes, absolutely. The Big well, Lebowski is the most guy movie. This is established. Kingpin. Kingpin. Kingpin's fine. Kingpin's fine. The people in Kingpin, oh. Woody Harrelson, it's Bill Murray, but I'm trying to remember it is Randy Quaid overplays. Randy Quaid totally fucking miscast in that. Either way, Pete Weber is the guyest guy of the most guy sport. And th just his quote alone is really enough, as much as I like Prince Nassim Hamed. So I, I, I have to go with Pete Weber. And maybe we can tweet at Pete Weber, get, so get something from Twitter. him. Get something from him. Okay, yo, I mean, what we can tell Pete Weber is the next time he asks someone, who do you think you are? I am a member of the Hall of Guy. Congratulations and welcome to the Hall, Pete Weber. There we who go. Who do you think you are? I am. Huh? <laughs> huh? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I'm amazed you didn't save that for one of your sign-offs. Oh, no, um, no, no. Uh, don't you worry. Well, speaking of sign-offs, that's all we've got today. Thank you so much for, for joining us on our single sport, guys. I think this was a, a great chat. Uh, as always, you can keep up with more, guys. we got Daily Guys of the Day coming from Diaz at RememberGuysPod. Email us at RememberingGuys at gmail.com. All the episodes are up on YouTube. One more time, just a shout-out to the awesome developers over at Yow Weasel. The Craig recording bot that we use to get all of our audio tracks is awesome, and it's free, and anyone that ever needs to record audio off Discord should totally use them. They're great. Uh, anything else for you guys to sign off with? We will know whether or not he played by the time that you all are listening to this, but Joel Embiid officially questionable to return from his COVID recovery. 
tomorrow, Saturday, against the Timberwolves. So really excited to see the greatest basketball player in the NBA. Yes, he is. I'm not taking any arguments. Return to the court. Joel Embiid, please get back on the court soon. We are glad you are recovered enough to be questionable. But I need definite, and I definitely want to see him play. Well, hopefully... Joel Embiid will, will be your making memories next week after he comes back and, and uh, comes back at full strength. And hopefully Lamar will be feeling well enough to play for me uh, on the Sunday if you're listening to this then. Uh, and if you have been listening to this, once again, thank you so much for choosing to join us. I am one of your hosts as always, James. I am the special guest host, Xavier. I am Diaz. And as William Congreve once wrote, hell hath no fury like a guy scorned. Catch y'all next week. Good thing this is just a game.